This Week in Startups is brought to you by Finn. Finn takes care of administrative tasks so you can make better use of your time and be more productive. Try Finn for free by going to finn.com slash twist. And Walker Corporate Law, specializing in the representation of entrepreneurs. Visit walkercorporatelaw.com. Next up, uh, one of my great personal friends and longtime collaborators, David Sachs, is here. Uh, come on up, David. Are you in the room? There he is. Um, so David launched Yammer at our conference back in the day. Um, and he said to me at some point, hey, schmuck, I think was the word he used, um, you are finding all these companies uh, and rehearsing with them, putting them on stage, and you know, own no equity in them. <laughs> you should start a fund. And I said, wow, that's an interesting idea. Um, how do you do that? And he said, well, I'll give you money and then start a fund. So uh, David Sachs was, in fact, the first LP for Launch Fund One. Thank you for that. Uh, and has continued to be an LP, and we continue to share deal flow together. Um, so please join me in welcoming David Sachs. Um, you, were, you were doing all the work. You just didn't have... You weren't making any money, so yeah, we had well, to fix that. Yeah, I had to get my beak wet. <laughs> I had to get a taste, just a little taste for J-Cal. Um, but since then, that monster has been created, and you went from um, working at Zenefits uh, or investing heavily, taking over Zenefits, um, cleaning up a, a little bit of a mess over there. Um, we'll talk about that a bit. But before that, of course, you did Yammer, sold it to uh, Microsoft for a billion dollars. From start to finish, the launch of Yammer at the conference to the sale of Microsoft. How many months, years was that? About three and a half. Yeah. And at the time, this was considered an outrageously fast uh, unicorn sale. Since that time, however, things have changed a bit. What did you learn about scaling Yammer from zero to a billion in three years and change to what's happened now? Yeah, I mean, PayPal was that way too. So PayPal, I mean, the whole period we refer to as the PayPal Mafia period was 1999 to 2002. It was also only about three years. Um, so what I would say is when you have a consumer product, um, they, the, the best ones tend to work right away. Like they just like click right away and you get that hockey stick and you're off to the races. And um, we're seeing that even more now with, uh, with Bird, which was the first um, VC check we wrote where, um, I mean, this was like totally unprecedented in like nine months it became a unicorn. Um, so it can happen very quickly, I think mainly in the consumer space um, or consumerized SaaS like, like Yammer. Consumerized SaaS, let's yeah. define that. What is consumerized SaaS versus regular old SaaS? Yeah, so, um, I would define consumerized SaaS as it's a business product. You're charging for your software, but you're appealing directly to the end user as opposed to going through like a corporate procurement process. Got it. So instead of trying to sell into the you know, general manager, CTO, VP of engineering, right. consumers can just put their credit card in and start paying for it. And Yammer was the right. first to do this, correct? Yeah. Or among the first? Um, I mean, I guess you had products around the same time, like Box, and um, sure. you know, there, there, there were some other ones, but it was definitely one of the first. And I think the, the, thing, that, the, the thing that we did that um, 
was pretty different is that we were a product that was bought by like the IT department of, of companies, um, but we didn't go to knocking on the CIO's door. We went straight to the employees, got critical mass in the network, then we went to the CIO. Got it. So actually, you know, unlike a lot of products where you would just pull out your credit card, buy it for yourself, the company was still buying Yammer, but we had a kind of a, a strategy of going to the employees first, frankly, over the heads of IT. Got it. And then creating the groundswell that would allow us to, to sell it. Um, before we get to Birdie, let's just do a little quick detour on, uh, into Zenefits because going fast can cause people to trip. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. You invested heavily in the company, came on board as the number two, eventually came on board as the number one when the founder kind of tripped um, and maybe uh, he made some big mistakes. So let's talk about what happened there, how you resolved it. Um, and what the lessons learned were. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we all want growth, um, but you have to be careful that, you know, a grow-at-all-cost mentality doesn't, like, cause the company to go off the rails. And I think that can happen. I mean, let's kind of, like, generalize it a little bit beyond benefits. I think that can happen when growth is prioritized at the expense of other things which are necessary, and you relax constraints that shouldn't be relaxed. So it can happen because you ignore compliance. It could happen because you ignore gross margins. You know, we've seen a lot of like companies, like say in the food delivery space or, you know, where, um, or food preparation, um, where the, the, the unit economics never made sense and they would expand into all these cities and then inevitably they'd pull back because um, we start with the, good the eggs were, as an yeah. example. Good eggs was delivering high end food in a bunch of markets. Uh, and then they had to retreat, recap the company. Our friend Bill Gurley just did a huge round in it. Mm -hmm. So apparently they figured out, Bill Gurley wouldn't invest if they didn't figure it out. They figured out right. the unit economics of that growth. Right. Let's so, yeah, so I mean, you'd be better off figuring out your gross margins before you expand. Um, you know, I think there's other, there's other things like that. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to, um, it's, you know, a, another uh, metric would be NPS. So uh, your net promoter score is basically a measure of how happy customers are with you. Um, it's very important to track that over time and not expand more rapidly than you can effectively make customers happy. So if your NPS is going down as you're expanding, it kind of tells you put on the brakes, make sure that you're taking care of those customers. Um, and that can happen when you're like moving up market. Let's say you've got a product that, you know, uh, appeals to customers at a low end of the market and you're trying to raise your deal sizes or move into a new market. Um, if you do that without watching your NPS, you could you know, essentially uh, jeopardize the quality of your product. Because those new customers might have higher expectations. They may might be used to a higher level of service or refinement that you're not providing. Yeah, you may have less product market fit um, and you may not notice for a while because, um, especially with SaaS products, first they have to be implemented, right? So if you first you sell, then you onboard, you implement the product, and um, it's a little bit like a snake that eats a rabbit. You can kind of see it moving through the, yeah. you know, and you may not notice that this thing's not like, it's not working for a while. Right. So not getting digested. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, um, you know, those are all examples, I think, of cases where, like, growth is not the only thing, and right. you, you don't want to ignore these other things. Okay, so that brings us to Bird. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I've seen this movie before where things grow very quickly and you have the people who own shares in the company defending it and they have inside information. And then you have external 
uh, folks criticizing the company heavily, saying this is a bubble, this is ridiculous. So let's qualify where Bird is at and talk about why you invested at, I believe, 50 million valuation or so, and you led the Series A, is that right? And then they've closed now a round of funding at $2 billion, is this correct? Okay, so explain to us how a company was worth 50 million and nine months later is worth 2 billion. What yeah. did, and this is Sequoia Capital, who yeah. did the round, and is it Ruloff who's involved? Yeah. So Ruloff is a good friend of ours, he's spoken at all events, um, he's on the board of Insight, so he is not stupid, he's the opposite of stupid, he's considered. Right. What are we all not seeing with a little scooter company that charges you $2 that went 40x in nine months? What, what is going on here? The, the, revenue, the revenue growth is really fast. Um, and that's a function, uh, and, and the demand for this product seems to be limitless. Um, so I think what's really going, this is, to me, Bird is a classic example of a transformative company that starts out looking like a toy. In this case, literally a toy. <laughs> Because you look at the scooter and you think it's like those razor toys that the kids have, but it's not. I mean, what we really need to realize is that a new mode of transportation has been invented because of battery tech, which is this, I call it a personal electric vehicle. And if you're to design a, if you start with the fact that you've now got batteries that are powerful enough to power a, uh, an electric motor that's capable of moving you know, a human a couple of miles, um, and can stay fully charged for a day, um, how would you design a, a vehicle around it? Well, what you do is you, you'd basically have a board for someone to stand on and handlebars, and that's what you'd design. And you can do it for about 300 bucks. Um, so I think it's a new mode of transportation, and the reason why it makes a lot of sense is because most trips in cities are under three miles. Um, so, and it shouldn't take 4,000 pounds of steel to move a human you know, a mile and a half. The average bird trips about a mile and a half. So when you think about like the, the wasted resources by forcing every trip to be a car trip, the, um, the amount of traffic and congestion that now causes, the fact that, you know, traffic gets worse and worse in our cities, um, you know, all those things, I think, make the demand for this just like apparently unlimited. And the, how does, how did it wind up getting to two billion, I'm curious, was there just massive competition for the deal, for the Series B? Was it a com- competition and h- how did it get to two billion? Because it is a big number, you would agree. Yeah, I mean, I think it just got there, like all rounds do, all sort of hotly uh, contested or bitted up rounds. Um, just It's a function of supply and demand. Okay, let's talk about Finn. I've been using Finn, and it is amazing. There are not enough hours in the day to get all your tasks done. And what are your options? You can continue to try to get things done by yourself, or you can change the way you're doing them, or you can try hiring another assistant. That's where we discovered Finn here at This Week in Startups. It takes care of all of our administrative tasks, and this lets us be more productive and focus on the things that matter. So, Things that Finn can do, F-I-N, Finn can do, schedule a call or meeting, make travel arrangements, you know how long that takes, do online shopping or buying, book your doctor's appointment, maybe even your dentist appointment. I just realized I need Finn to do that for me. I forgot about my dental appointment. And you can help find uh, service professionals if you need a handy person or a plumber. And the results are clear. You will save time 
by having Finn perform all these administrative tasks. And it's much cheaper than hiring a personal assistant or an administrator. You will be more productive and you will get more done. Like the best assistants, Finn knows your preferences. They remember the people you interact with and they integrate with your email and calendar. Finn can make calls, send emails on your behalf, pay bills, remember important dates and automatically get things done for you. It has saved us a ton of time. I'm loving using it. Finn is always available on demand, and you pay for only what you use. So you don't have any fear about, oh, my God, am I wasting hours? Nope. You pay as you go. So go ahead and try Finn, and you will love it as much as I do, I am sure. Listeners to my show, you can try Finn for free. Think about that. Go to Finn.com slash twist, F-I-N.com slash twist. Go to Finn.com slash twist, and you can try Finn for free. Stop wasting your time on all these administrative tasks. Just outsource them to Finn. Get them all done nice and quick, easy peasy, and focus on what you do best. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. What does Bird have to do in the next year or two to fill in that valuation, to live up to that expectation? And how are you managing the founders in this process? Because when it was valued at 50 million, people were saying, this is crazy. At two billion, people are saying like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" Your explanation right. makes a lot of sense to me, right. and from what I understand, the two dollar, four dollar ride is exactly the sweet spot of Lyft Line and Uber X, Uber Pool. Well, it's cheaper, it's, uh, and it, no, it's, it's, it's but cheaper. it's the same distance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so like I said, the average bird trip is about a mile and a half. Um, if you're all, so, it's a little too far to walk. You know, and people don't like to bike. Um, there's a bunch of reasons for that, but the most important one is that. With biking, um, the human has to provide the, the locomotion, and most people don't want to work. Um, that's the difference between with electric is that the human doesn't have to do any work. That makes a huge difference. Um, so yeah, if you're going to go a mile, two miles, you could call an Uber or Lyft, and that's going to cost you like several times more, and you have to wait. I mean, in the time that you're waiting, the five to seven minutes for the car to show up, you could have already gotten there. So it works really well for these short trips in cities. And the uh, revenue growth has been explosive. I think what Bird has to do is just keep executing and you know they're launching more cities. They have to stay the leader in the space that they invented. So that's the key, stay the leader in the space. Uh, yeah. Uber, which are an investor in as well, um, relatively early as well, um, bought Jump. Jump said on my podcast that they were gonna go into scooters. Um, Lyft file to be in scooters. So Bird is going to be up against the two biggest players who have that, a large installed base. Explain to me, if you were the CEO of the company, how you would make sure that they win that fight. Or at least, you know, don't get bronze, but get at least the silver medal. Well, you know, first of all, it's not my, um, I'm not the CEO. This is not my, you know, I'm not the founder. It's not my idea. The the founder of the company, Travis, um, is really the visionary in the space. Um, when he came up with this, everyone thought it was crazy. Um, I initially told him I thought the idea was crazy, and then I actually tried the product, and it was a lot more magical than I thought, and then we wrote the Series A check. So, you know, ultimately it's up to the team, uh, but I think the reason why um, I would expect them to win is just this was Travis's idea. He's the visionary. He's got plans in his head for where this goes over the next few years that whereas other people are just trying to copy what they did a quarter or two quarters ago. So a good example of this is, you know, one of the innovations they came up with is the charger network. Um, so uh, 
you know, the, the, one of the issues with these electric vehicles is they have to be charged every night. And so they have to be picked up and charged and then put back out on the streets. And Travis figured out that, I mean, I think the way that 99% of entrepreneurs would have approached this is the way that Uber did city expansion. You hire a manager in each city, that manager then hires a team, you rent an office, you get a warehouse, and you expand that way. And what Travis figured out is, if, first of all, he realized if he did that, it'd be extremely slow to roll this out. So what he did is he created this uh, gig economy around chargers, and they're able to acquire, uh, basically their, their operations team is you know, gig economy labor, and it allows them to move into a city without having any like physical footprint, without having real estate. They don't have to sign a lease. They don't have to, uh, you know, rent a warehouse. And um, and because of that, uh, they've been able to grow very very quickly. And so I think like Travis is the best I've ever seen at understanding how to frictionlessly scale, uh, you know, a startup and a good idea. So they can drop two hundred scooters in a city and put an ad on Craigslist or something and say, hey, if you want to make five bucks per scooter, just take the scooter home, pick it right. up, charge it, and then drop it off in this location. And I heard that some of these people make two or $300 a day doing it. Is that right? Um, that sounds high to me, but I think it's possible. Yeah. They get five bucks to recharge a scooter? I think, yeah, I think it's typically about five bucks, but then there are like bounties for um, scooters that if they end up in some Crazy location. Crazy location or whatever. And it could I, be 10 bucks yeah. or something, yeah. Yeah, so there's a bunch of subtle, um, uh, I wouldn't call them barriers to entry, but barriers to scale or, mm. or, um, or favorable economics that result from being the number one player. So, for instance, when you think about the chargers, there's route density. So, you know, if Bird has the most scooters in a city and you're a charger, let's say your goal is to, to get 10 scooters, you could probably do that by going to one block, picking them up, you're done. Yeah. And so you're, the reward you're getting on your labor is it's much higher. Whereas a brand new scooter network that's entering, if their chargers have to go running all over the city to pick up that same number of scooters, they got to spend a lot more. So route density is a big issue. There's economies of scale around the, um, the scooters themselves. Um, and then there's, you know, there's issues around um, uh, creating the best footprint brand um, be the first app among riders. This week, I have spent at least 10 hours cleaning up legal messes at startups I'm investing in. In one case, the founders didn't have vesting schedules, and one of the founders left the company. So now this 40% of the company is owned by a founder who doesn't even work there and only worked there for six months. In other cases, People use the wrong corporate structure. They were LLCs, which then prevents them from ever getting venture capital. In other cases, they were registered in a foreign country and couldn't get investors in America. In other cases, they didn't even have non-disclosures and non-solicitation. So an employee left one of my startups and took three people with them because they didn't have a non-solicitation. All of these legal errors would have easily been caught by my friend Scott Walker at the Walker Corporate Law Group. They are a boutique law firm, and you've heard me talk about the Walker Corporate Law Group here on This Week in Startups many times. Well, they are focused on entrepreneurs and startups only. This is what they do at Walker Corporate Law, and they encourage fixed fees. In other words, they tell you what they're going to charge you for a service. So you don't have to sit there with that anxiety waiting to open that PDF and seeing some huge bill. Nope. 
You know up front what it's going to cost to do those mergers and acquisitions, licensing agreements, start your company, employee stock option plans, terms of service, privacy policies, all these things have to be done right. And they will cost 10 times as much to fix because I'm literally doing that. Before I invest in a company, I give them a list. You have to fix the vesting schedule. You've got to get the company incorporated properly. You've got to get the IP assignment done. I'm literally doing cleanup work that Scott Walker would have solved for these companies had they used him as their attorney. So give him a call, 415-979-9998. You've heard me say that number before, 415-979-9998. Or email Scott directly, scott at walkercorporatelaw.com, scott at walkercorporatelaw.com, or visit walkercorporatelaw.com. You really have to get focused on these things. Have the right corporate structure, have the right cap table, have the right vesting schedule, IP assignments. If your company's worth doing, it's worth doing correctly. Get your legal stuff dialed in so that you don't have red flags popping up. And we literally had a meeting before uh, this podcast where I was sitting with one of my people who went through some diligence and there were like seven issues that needed to be fixed. And we got to the end and said, you know what? Is this a sign that the CEO doesn't know what they're doing? Is this too many red flags for us to invest? Well, I'm telling you candidly, if you have too many of these red flags come up during due diligence, you could lose quality investors. So go talk to Scott Walker. He's a great guy. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Let's talk a little bit about um, deploying them in cities um, aggressively let's say, San Francisco birds were dropped, uh, and there seemed to be, as there is with anything new, a massive rage cycle on Twitter that was extraordinarily <laughs> intense, um, only eclipsed by how short it was, <laughs> how short-lived it was, and there are rage-filled you know, lifestyle now. Um, people were kind of joking that, like, San Francisco you know, homelessness, drug abuse, and crime, nobody really tweets about. But like when bird scooters got dropped, right. people were going bonkers, complaining about them. Um, what is the, how should cities think about this? And what is the valid criticism of these being just dropped into streets? Because people were taking pictures from China of bike companies. And I don't know if these are Photoshop pictures right. or what the context are to them. But I didn't seem to have a problem with the number of bird scooters on the street or any other companies. The one thing I did have a bit of a problem with was three dorky people side by side riding them across a crosswalk, which seemed like not the right way to ride these. You probably should be single file. Um, but let's talk about deployment in cities. What did they get right? What did they get wrong in San Francisco? And what's the proper um, way for cities to deal with this? If you were to be empathetic and think about a city well, how should they contextualize hundreds of scooters being dropped onto the streets and, you know, in the worst person's interpretation, littering and clogging up a city and in the best person's interpretation, right. removing cars? Yeah, I mean, so BIRD has proposed a, a regulatory framework for cities um, that, and so, something, so first of all, there's a lot of user education around the way to ride these things, where to ride them, don't ride them on the sidewalk, wear a helmet. Um, so they do all of that. But in addition to that, they propose that a, a good regulatory framework would be that any provider of these scooters has to pick them up every night. I mean, they have to be charged anyway. They have to be maintained. They have to be redeployed um, the next morning to the places they should be. Um, they've proposed a what they call a dynamic cap. 
on the number of scooters, which is if the scooters aren't being used, you don't get to put them out there. And they've proposed a dynamic cap of three rides per scooter per day. So you know, this would be the way of avoiding a situation like we had in China, where the companies would just you know, put out you know, as many bikes as they could, whether they get used or not. Uh, they create a lot of clutter, and then they don't maintain them. They don't pick them up. They just leave them there until they de deteriorate into scrap. So you know, that would be the way to do it, is you just basically say that don't let the companies put more supply out there than there's demand for and you know, make them maintain it. Um, and then in addition to that, Bird's proposed a rev share with cities um, to contribute to like shared infrastructure. Um, but you are seeing cities doing interesting things. So by the way, Santa Monica, which is the city that has the most experience with scooters, because that's where Bird launched, has now adopted this framework, this idea of dynamic caps. Um, you've got cities like Memphis, where I'm from, uh, they actually have now started um, uh, painting, the, like, you know, and actually other cities too, where they create, um, you know, on the sidewalks areas for bird parking. You know, it's, all it takes is some stencils and spray paint, and you basically designate an area as scooter parking. So there are, I think, solutions to this problem, and um, you know, and I think part of it also is just that people's baselines have to change. You know, cars create a tremendous amount of clutter in cities, but we've just gotten used to accepting it and seeing, you know, we've gotten, you know, and um, I think once people realize that these scooters are a legitimate new mode of transportation that ultimately makes cities more livable, reduce pollution, help us get around, reduce traffic, I think there'll be a greater acceptance. Uh, you and I are old enough to remember the Segway, mm -hmm. and this seemed to be the, the false start Right. Uh, for this industry. Why did Segway not work and why is this so explosive in growth and adoption? I think the Segway is a classic example of a too soon product. And too soon products are usually, I mean obviously they have some kernel of an idea that's correct because it's ultimately validated, but uh, it's usually there too soon because the user interface is too complicated and uh, the functionality is a little too weak. And so, you know, if you think about like the products that work incredibly well, that just explode, you actually have the reverse of that, where you've got an incredibly simple user interface, but tremendous power beneath the surface. And so, you know, the two soon products have that flipped. The UI is too complicated. And so think about like an iceberg, um, like a, a great product is more like a, your part above the water is the, is the user interface, the part you see, but it controls a ton of functionality beneath the water, and I think the two soon products are kind of like the upside down iceberg. Or a mountain, like you have to yeah. climb them and yeah. to kind of get any value yeah. out of them. And, yeah, so like the Newton. And too expensive, I mean. You yeah, see. so the Newton, you know, compared to the iPhone's another example of that, where you just look at the Newton, compared to the iPhone, the UI is just way too complicated, and the functionality was too weak. Google Glass, well, we don't know what this will eventually become, but I suspect that we'll look back on Google Glass and see it as a too soon product. Um, but yeah, I think the Segway was ultimately too soon. It was too complicated to use. It was too expensive. I mean, I still don't know how to use a, a Segway, but I think it had... Wait, you own a Segway? No, no, I don't. I, I actually have never, I've never ridden one. You've never ridden yeah, one, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I've seen people use them and it just seems... Like yeah, tourists yeah. running around Paris and yeah. getting snickered at. Yeah. Um, so you started a new fund. It's yeah. a, what, a three or $400 million fund. You raised it in six minutes. It <laughs> seemed. 
How we long were, did it yeah. take you to raise this fund, and how big is it? Um, we raised $350 million, and it took, I guess, probably about three months. Uh, which is ridiculous. Um, few people can pull that off. What is it that made it so easy for you to pull off a cold start to what is what most people take a lifetime to build up to as a venture firm? Well, I've been investing as an angel investor for almost 20 years, and so I had a pretty extensive track record for you know investing in I don't know like 80 companies or something like that, and um, something like 13 unicorns or I don't know ex exactly how many it was. So I was able to show uh, LPs like pretty long track record, and it was kind of the, the fun was it, it wasn't really a cold start; it was more an extension of what I was already doing. Let's talk about some of those uh, individual investments you made, angel investments. Um, I heard, I don't know if this is correct, that you did the Series B of Howes as an individual. Is that true? I didn't lead it. I participated in it. You, but you did millions of dollars as an individual in that yeah. round. So you co-led it? No, no, no. I didn't co-lead it. They, oh. uh, NEA led the round. They had actually it. had it done. And then I discovered the product, loved it. I was using it. And then I went to the company and asked if I could somehow participate. And, then I, and I got in then. Is that your actual cash-on-cash cash most successful investment, or is it Uber? Because um, House is worth $4 billion now, $5 billion, <laughs> and you invested when it was $100 million? It's a 50x, right? No, the, the, uh, the series, it was, it was a little further along okay. than that. I mean, it, it, definitely that was one of our more successful ones. I mean, it's up there with Uber, I would say. Yeah. What else is in that sort of, let's call it the Saks collection of individual <laughs> investments predating Kraft? Um, Facebook. Um, when did you invest? 2006. So, obviously, private. Is that the B round? It was just after, I think, um, I think it was just after, um, uh, was it Greylock invested yeah. or something like that? You still so, hold those shares or did you sell them? Um, <laughs> uh, I have some, but. You have some, have but some, you did sell yeah. some. Yeah, obviously. Did we, you sell too early? Sure, of course. Yeah. Yeah, we all, we all do. I mean, and I think other people have said this that, um, you know, I think you'd be better off if you never sold a share of anything, if that were the choice. But um, so clearly, yeah, in the case of Facebook, we all sold too early. Um, and what's your position on Facebook's recent trouble? Uh, obviously, this um, privacy issues, the, the election, you know, running crazy ads, bought in rubles, huge mistakes were made. Yet the stock price is at a peak and yeah. they're growing through it. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that company? How do you look at it? Is it, are you long Facebook or are you short Facebook? You know, I, I feel like when, the, by the time they get to be like a $500 billion public company, that's got like, you know, many years of operating history. I don't, I feel like I don't really have any special insights at that point. You know, I feel like all of my pattern recognition is around like kind of early stage companies and what's going to take off then. And, um, I just, I don't do any public investing. What was the pattern recognition when you did make that investment? Was it just Peter Thiel, who obviously is an LP in your fund, saying, this guy's brilliant? Or did you actually use the product and see some pattern recognition? Or was there something you saw in Zuckerberg himself? I think it was, um, so I, at the time, face, uh, MySpace was the dominant social network. And my initial reaction to Facebook, this is like very early, like 2004, 2005, was um, how are they going to overcome MySpace's network effects because the interlocking friend graph is a very, very powerful network effect as we see now with Facebook. And, um, and actually the thing I remember is um, Peter introduced me to Zuckerberg very early, early on and the thing that 
Zuck was very focused on was um, engagement. And he was able to point to engagement stats showing that Facebook was used far more than, than MySpace. And so um, that was really interesting. And, um, and then the thing they did was launch Newsfeed, where I don't know if you remember, like Newsfeed was launched in I think around mid-2006. Yeah. And before Newsfeed, the way that social networking worked was it was all about profiles. You would just like surf profiles and see what people were doing. And if you wanted to see what had changed, you would just have to like, you know, go to people's profiles and sort of stalk them or something. And then the newsfeed changed all that by aggregating all the changes in one place. And then eventually you could post to the, to, um, you know, directly into the feed that came later. Uh, but the newsfeed was really the thing where I think once they had that, it just catapulted, it propelled them way beyond. MySpace could never do that because MySpace's data was never as structured. And so at that point, it became like really clear that, I mean, you not only had fantastic growth and great engagement, but you also had like a pace of innovation that MySpace just wasn't keeping up with. And it was pretty obvious that they were going to win at that point. Uh, you were super enthusiastic on the Twitter um, about a year or two ago about crypto yeah. and about VR. You were kind of going bonkers. It was <laughs> like you were in full Kool-Aid mode. Right. How do you look at those two technologies which have fallen flat since that time right. when you couldn't shut up about them on Twitter? I'm always following your Twitter because I'm like, well, he's got great signal. I got to pay attention. Right. Are those too soon technologies, too complicated as we just discussed with the iceberg and the mountain metaphor? Yeah. I mean, they're clearly too soon in the sense that you don't have like mass adoption yet. Um, I, I mean, I can tell you why um, or Go what ahead. needs to be solved. So on the VR side, there's a hardware problem and a, and a software problem. The, the hardware problem is that the, the VR headsets need to become fully untethered. You know, as long as you're like plugged in to, you know, like the matrix with a bunch of cords, um, it's just not like a, a user-friendly enough experience. It's got to be like more like in Ready Player One, where you can just put on the headset and boom, you're transported into this world. So the hardware's got to get better, and it's not just about being untethered. It's also about the fact that part of the reason why you're tethered is because the you you need a sufficiently powerful GPU that you only get in like gaming PCs, and so you part of what you're doing is you're plugging into like you know like a Razer PC or something like that, and so. Where we need to get to is that the GPU is built directly into the headset. You don't need like a two, three, four thousand dollar like PC in order to have a great experience. And um, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, Oculus cut the cost of its headset from five hundred to four hundred. Yeah, but that's not the real cost. I mean, the headset doesn't work that great unless you're plugged into a really, you know, beefy uh, gaming PC. So until you can like pack everything into this sort of headset. I think that's what's needed for mass adoption. That's on the hardware side. On the software side, what's needed is um, multiplayer, you know, because playing against computer games just gets old really fast. And, you know, if you can get to multiplayer where you're playing against other humans or better yet, massively multiplayer, again, like the Oasis and Ready Player One, then I think you're going to have something that's just super compelling. Um, I mean, a lot of the VR games that I've played, they are very compelling, but you don't want to come back and just do them over and over again because you're playing against a computer, and that gets old. So that's, uh, that's VR. We can talk about crypto. For sure. Yeah. Um, and how far are we from solving those two problems if you had to put a year on it? Because we did have yeah. the new Oculus. What's the new Oculus called? 
Go, go. the new Oculus Go. They gave yeah. that for free at the Code Conference yeah. as a, I'm sorry for helping rig the election gift uh, for everybody. Yeah. Um, we're sorry. Um, and that seems to you know, connect it tethers to your phone, so it's a little bit better, but it's yeah. not as powerful. So f phone-based um, VR just hasn't been high quality enough. It doesn't create the level of immersion that you need. You really need these um, uh, kind of like you know, high-end uh, GPUs. Uh, now, maybe that's changing. I mean, there's this um, new Snapdragon chip for, for phone-based VR. We'll see if that's good enough. Um, if I were to put a, a time frame on it, the good news is that Moore's Law is definitely happening in the world of GPUs. If you look at the price performance of GPUs, it's doubling every 18 months. So I would put, Sometimes better. What's, yeah. So, um, so you think about, like, if... Over the next, say, four and a half years or five years, you'd have three doubles. That's 8x. So we're going to have like a, you know, within five years, we're going to have a 10x improvement in the price performance of, of uh, you know, of GPUs. I, that would probably be like the outside date on like when this thing really starts to take off. All right, let's go to crypto. Yeah. Um, when you guys launched Craft, some people were saying it was a crypto fund. I don't know if that was just because uh, you and your partner, uh, Bill Lee, were passionately talking about crypto. Yeah. Um, is it a crypto fund? What percentage of the fund is crypto? And what's your take on the crypto apocalypse that's occurred since <laughs> December, where two thirds yeah. of the value has evaporated? So um, crypto is a theme. You know, we're very interested in you know, all emerging new technologies and platforms. Um, but obviously, as an investor, you have to stay open-minded. I mean, I wouldn't have predicted when I started the fund that like Bird would be this, you know, that we would be in yeah like a scooter sharing company. So, um, you know, as, as the VC, you don't come up with the ideas, you know, the entrepreneurs do, and so you got to keep an open mind. But crypto is definitely a theme that we were interested in, we're still interested in. We've made a number of bets in that area. I like all of our bets. The one that, um, you know, we've incubated one company called Harbor, which is um, creating what you might say are legal ICOs on the blockchain. It's the one, ICOs are the one proven application of the blockchain to do fundraising. The problem is, historically, it hasn't been compliant. So we started thinking about, well, could you solve that problem? Could you actually do compliant fundraising on the blockchain? We think that's an enormous opportunity, um, and um, the team's getting ready to launch soon, so I think that's pretty exciting. And the other really big bet we made was in uh, BitGo, which is doing institutional custody for crypto. Again, it's another compliance-driven uh, sort of picks and shovels play where if you're a hedge fund, in order to even hold uh, crypto, you not only need some sort of wallet and custodian, you also need uh, a custodian with the right uh, licenses. And uh, Bitco's the only company that, that has that. To make sure that you don't lose it. To make sure you don't lose it. Exactly. Hacked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, you know, we've made some of these picks and shovels plays and we've made some smaller bets in... Um, you know, in we've tended not to be that active in on sort of tokens. You know, the part that you're you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think you know we're kind of making traditional like seed stage or or private or yeah. like VC type bets. Uh, so this is private in the room, and so many many people here are members of the syndicate and participated in the Cafe X deal, so mm -hmm. they know that that's going down, and we're obviously wrapping that up. Right. Let's talk a little bit about Cafe X and right. why you're interested in that company, what you see there, what you think uh, we need to do to, you know, turn a Cafe X into a bird or a Cafe right. X into an Uber. Yeah, so um, so the product is beautiful. I saw Henry here back here somewhere. Yeah, 
Henry's done an amazing job designing that product. It's really beautiful. Um, the coffee is great. So the product is awesome. And like Bird, I think it could have uh, what I call real-world virality. Um, so the reason why Bird exploded is if you saw somebody riding a Bird whizzing by, you've never seen one of these like vehicles before. It's a new form factor. You're like, whoa, what is that? Now you see one on the street. You walk up to it. You can just download the app, scan the QR code, and you're off to the races. And so there's this real-world virality going on where observers convert into users and you know, and it, then it feeds the next cycle. Um, and I think it's possible to create vectors like that in the real world. And I would say that the potential for Cafe X is to create a vector like that where uh, it's not just on the users, but among like building managers. So let's say that you're a landlord, a building owner, a building manager, and you want to create you know, a robotic coffee, not create, if you wanna have a robotic coffee shop as an amenity in your building or on your property, Every time, you know, let's say that 1% of Cafe X's customers are in that position. If they go to a Cafe X machine, have a great experience, and, you know, and Cafe X just puts a, you know, www.cafex.com, like, signage. Yeah. You know, people go there, and it could be, it, you get the flywheel going. Yeah. So I think, like, to me, that, that's how you could get something that would just explode. Now, you asked the question, wh what does the company need to do uh, to, 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 to have that kind of explosion. And, and I, what I would say is you've got to think the way that Travis did at Bird, which is he thought about how do I systematically remove friction from that flywheel? Hmm. So he knew that his biggest source of friction was charging. So he created a gig labor force. And yeah. this is true, I think, for everybody is instead of thinking about how do I build my company, think about what are the sources of friction to this thing scaling and how do I remove those sources of friction? So for Cafe Access location. I think it's I think it's getting new locations and then manufacturing, obviously. Got so it. what you want to do is like, you know, how do you just make manufacturing like pushing print, you know, and then how do you make new locations like how do you get this flywheel going where you can just kind of keep adding right. new ones very and I think that's the key. Right. So, so if work you can, to be done. Yeah. So if you can remove that friction, the thing could explode. Right. If you could just have a location and walk the machine in on casters like rollers right. into the lobby that day yeah. that the person says I want a machine right you would be off to the races yeah so and that there, there's some like permitting and land use issues around that but yes yeah. that would be awesome um, what's your advice as we wrap up here to folks who are in years one to five of angel investing um, in how to do portfolio management, pick founders, deal flow, whatever you think is important. What do you think the keys are to becoming a great angel early stage investor? Um, you know, I think it's, there, there's a lot of pattern recognition around the stuff that we all do, and a lot of it can be pretty subtle. Um, so I think the, the more you see and the more time you spend doing this stuff, I think the better and better your pattern recognition gets. Um, and then obviously the, the other thing, the other lesson that, you know, keeps recurring for me is just that just always support the best people. So, you know, like in hindsight, so Travis, you know, Bird is one of the best entrepreneurs I've ever worked. He was my chief revenue officer at Yammer and he was just like amazing. So even though his idea sounded crazy, I mean, really my mistake was not investing at the seed stage. And Where Mark Schuster did the deal. No, he, he did the, he did, uh. Mark came in at the B round, so B we round, did A okay. and he came in at B, but uh, Goldcrest did the seed round. I participated as an, as an individual in the seed round, then we led the A, but we weren't a fund yet, but my point is just like, you know, for the great people, just come in 
Just, I, it almost doesn't matter what the idea is. Really? Yeah. Just back the jockey, that's it. You know this person's if, a winner. If, if they're great, yeah, if for they're sure. Great. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And then what about adding to your position? We heard earlier in the last two days that one of the new um, uh, trends in venture and investing is when you know you have a winner, just buy all the shares. <laughs> what do you think of the buy all the shares mentality that we see? Well, buy whose shares? <laughs> Well, if you have a breakout, you have Bird, uh, yeah. uh, or if you had Uber, or just whatever is, you get that sense is breaking out, yeah. how is Slack, whatever. Do, do you subscribe to the buy all the shares and are you active on second, secondary markets to do that? Um, generally, yes, um, because it's so rare that you actually get like a breakout that when you do, you want to like capitalize on that. And um, so, you know, w what I learned uh, from the whole bird experience is how valuable pro rata rights can be. Um, you don't think they're, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like ex ante that they'd be that valuable, but I can tell you that like when Sequoia ended up doing this round, that was like the hottest round I've ever seen. Everyone was fighting for an allocation and to have your allocation guaranteed was really nice. And, you know, and it just in general, it's in the company's interest to diversify their investor bases. So, um, you know, to, to, so the pro ratas really matter in the best deals. And, um, but generally, yes, I agree with you that like when you know you've got a winner, and it's, it's actually hard to know in the early stages, but um, it, it does make sense to kind of back up the truck. Is it in the best interest of founders to have a diversification of investors, or is it in the best interest to quickly do fundraising? So WhatsApp, famously, at Sequoia, they did all the rounds of funding. I don't think there were many outside investors, certainly no institutional ones, and they just rode that straight up to 19 billion before anybody knew what it was. Yeah. What do you think of that strategy, the just, you know what, yeah. I trust my investor, I don't mind them getting into a larger percentage, and I don't want to ever tip anybody off and do a roadshow. Yeah, I mean, that worked great, brilliant on Sequoia's part. And, but uh, brilliant for the founders of WhatsApp as well, or no? Should well, they have gone out and gone to Marketplace? Well, the, the, the reason to go out usually is because you do need a new investor to set the price, typically. Otherwise, you just don't know. Um, but I do like the idea of, you know, uh, if you have a good idea, not taking it all over town, you know. And, um, you know, uh, w one of the reasons why, with, with Bird, um, we actually did that investment about nine months ago. We, we stayed in stealth for about six months on that. One of the reasons why everyone thought that the company fundraised like the round so quickly is because we didn't announce the A round until we were ready to do the B round. So um, it was still really quick, but um, so I, I do think there's something to the idea that um, it, it's not a great idea for, for founders to run an auction, you know, because you're, you will share, to the extent you have secret sauce, it's all gonna get out. Um, and um, so I like the idea of making a shorter list of investors that you really want and then going after one of those. Great. On that note, let's hear it for David Sachs. Well done. Wow.